This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au Thank you Hannah. Well good morning. Good morning. My name is James. If we haven't met before, I am one of the pastors here at Anchor. And uh, a special welcome to anyone who is new or visiting as well. Let me add my welcome to Hannah's uh, we want to thank you for being here with us today. We love having visitors, and so we hope that uh, you not only enjoy your time with us this morning, but that you feel comfortable and welcomed as well in this space and with our people. Well, hey, I'm excited to preach. We've got David and Goliath, the epic, this morning. So, uh, guys, come on. I'm going to need you to bring me some energy. Let's, um, let's pray together and uh, ask God to speak to us this morning. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a speaking God. And so, Father, I thank you that uh, you have brought each person here today, that you know each person, that you see each person. Uh, and, Father, you know what it is that you want to speak to us. And so, God, help me to get out of the way this morning. Uh, Holy Spirit, would you do what you and only you can do? Uh, speak to us, Lord. Uh, in our hearts, in our minds, give us an openness to hear what it is that you are saying. Uh, we want to meet with you this morning. We want to encounter you, your glory, your goodness, your grace. So I pray all these things and ask them humbly in the name of your son, Jesus. And all God's people said, amen, amen. Well, I want to start this morning by asking you guys a question. The question is, have you ever come up against an insurmountable opposition. Have you ever faced what appears to be an immovable object in your life? An obstacle that you just haven't been able to climb over or run through or go around even despite your best efforts, even, though your, even despite your greatest determination. I remember back in 2018, experiencing my very first ever panic attack. It actually happened here in this very location. Uh, we'd been sitting through a service in the theater. We were responding as we typically do on a Sunday morning. Worship was playing. I was sitting down in the front, the best place to sit, best place to worship and respond. And something very strange happened to me something very strange, I started to become very aware of my heartbeat. I started to become very aware of this thumping sensation in my chest, and it was very foreign to me. I started to think, what's going on? This feels really weird. My heart started racing as if I was watching the highest adrenaline part of a high-speed chase movie or sitting on a roller coaster, except none of that was happening. I was just standing there in the middle of worship started to begin to freak out. This overwhelming sense of dread began to rise up inside of me. I bolted, went straight to the bathroom, went into a cubicle, locked the door, sat down, and just tried to catch my breath. After about five minutes or so, I think maybe, maybe it was shorter, maybe it was longer, I don't really know. As soon as that time had passed, I kind of felt like, all right, I think I've gotten myself together, I've gathered myself, I went back into the gathering, started again, started to freak out, 
service had just ended. People were all talking to each other. Couldn't see my wife anywhere. Didn't really know what to do. Just made a beeline for the exit. Headed straight out those doors. Ended up crumpled at the top of the stairs, sitting against the wall. The sheer panic overtook me. I felt like my world was out of control. I actually thought in those moments that I was going to die. Uh, some of you here who've been at this church for a number of years might remember that Sunday thinking, why is James sitting there against that wall? Uh, is, is he all right? I ended up sitting there paralyzed, feeling powerless for about three hours. Everyone left, went to lunch, church bumped out, me and Katie, my sister, just sitting there. Turns out what I would learn later with hindsight is that what I'd had was a series of panic attacks. Typical panic attack, panic attack doesn't really last more than half an hour, but if you really kind of freak out and you don't know what's happening, one kind of just merges into the other and you have this rolling wave of just panic attacks happening over and over again. Uh, for the next few months, I, I sought help. I wrestled with irrational concerns and fears about my health. Every day thought, oh, what if that happens again? Began to kind of conflate the sensation of a panic attack with a heart attack. Kept thinking that I was going to just fall over one day and die. Sought some help. Started talking to someone. My next panic attack came in the car a couple months later, driving out to preach at a friend's youth group. Just freaking out. Couldn't pull over. Ended up going there. He asked me if I was all right. And I'll tell you what, I preached the most lifeless low-energy sermon that I have ever preached in my life. Ironically, that wasn't even the worst thing that I would experience in my mental health journey that was only just beginning. But the rest of that story, perhaps we will save for another time. I wonder if you've ever encountered something like that before, maybe not a panic attack, maybe not necessarily even in the sphere of mental health, but just this giant obstacle in your life a trial, a form of opposition, of resistance, a bad diagnosis, a relational breakdown, something that seems insurmountable. What do you do in the face of an insurmountable situation? Where do we turn when it seems like all of the odds are against us? The question we want to ask as God's people this morning is, how do we stand firm? And perhaps not even only stand firm, but how do we continue moving forward when victory feels like the least likely outcome? See, these are some of the questions that the Israelites in the passage were facing. Where we are is camped out at war against the Philistines. That's where we find ourselves in the passage today. The Philistines, one of the great recorded enemies in Scripture of the Israelites, and the people were terrified. See, what had happened was the Philistines, the Philistines had challenged God's people to this kind of very specific champion type of warfare where each army would choose one representative to fight on behalf of the entire nation. And whoever was victorious out of those two champions, those two representatives, they would be the winner and the loser, the entire nation who belonged to that loser would become slaves. And the problem was that the Philistines had this ridiculous champion, a literal giant by the name of Goliath, 
recorded in the scriptures, he was nine foot six. And if that sounds a little bit far-fetched to you, I did a bit of research this week. Tallest recorded human being in the history of man, eight foot 11. So that's like scientifically, that's a fact. So nine foot six, not out of the realm of possibility. Goliath, a violent, vicious, aggressive man, probably as imposing a figure as you could read about in literature. And the Israelites had a teenager called David. And if you're not familiar with the biblical narrative, if if perhaps you didn't grow up in church, David is a character that we're introduced to today. He's the one who we will watch become the successor from Saul, the next king of Israel, as a direct result of God's rejection of Saul, as we heard and learnt about last week. And so here is David going up against Goliath. And the question is, what hope do God's people have when the odds seem so firmly against them? How can they experience victory? So what I want to do this morning as we journey through this famous story in 1 Samuel 17 is I want to share with you three key lessons that we learn from God's word about what to do when faced with an insurmountable situation. Three lessons Three key principles that we can directly apply to our lives when we come face to face with an insurmountable situation. Does that sound all right? It's good. So if you've, got a, if you've got a Bible, have it open there, 1 Samuel 17. The words will be up on the screen behind me as well. And if you have a note-taking device, I'd encourage you, whip that out. Take some notes. Let's engage in discipleship with one another together. So our first lesson for today that we learn about what to do when coming face to face with an insurmountable situation is this. We learn to view our situation with spiritual eyes. We learn to view our situation with spiritual eyes. You see, as Christians, if you are here in the room today and you identify as someone who is a follower of Jesus, or maybe even you don't particularly identify as a follower of Jesus, but you just kind of believe in a God. Maybe you're like a deist. Maybe you subscribe to some kind of monotheistic religion. There are two lenses that we can typically view the world through. Two lenses when viewing any situation in life. The lens of the natural and the lens of the supernatural. Let me break that down for you a little bit. See, the lens of the natural sees things as they are, the physical, the material, exactly what is tangibly in front of me. And the natural lens views these things through the conventional wisdom and perspective of the world. That's the first lens. The second lens is the lens of the supernatural or the spiritual. And this sees things not only as they are, but as they could be. And this view tends to see things through the wisdom and the perspective of God. Uh, This might bring to mind for some of you those chapters in 1 Corinthians where Paul talks about the foolishness of the world and the wisdom of God and how the wisdom of God is viewed by the world as foolishness. And you see, when we look at the Israelite situation in this passage, there's really no reasonable or natural 
reason to expect them to be victorious over the Philistines. Like, like there really isn't. And I know some of this, let me just address the elephant in the room. I know some of this is like a given because some of you grew up hearing this. This is the first biblical story you ever heard. But for a minute, let's detach ourselves from kind of our childhood recollection of that story from the folklore. And let's try and really put ourselves in this scene. Like, let's think critically about what's actually taking place here. So here's the head-to-head of the two champions of the nations. On the one hand, we've got Goliath. Nine foot six, the scriptures say, a warrior since his youth, trained in battle, who was so strong, it's recorded that his helmet and his coat of armor weighed respectively 13 kilos. So Hannah was talking about the weight in terms of shekels, and if we translate that into our measurement system today, kilograms, his helmet weighed 13 kilos, and his coat of armor which covered his torso to protect him from swords and spears and arrows, it weighed 58 kilos. So for some of you, it's like Goliath is wearing you as armor, right? Like that's how strong this guy is, that he would be in battle moving around freely with force, carrying this kind of weight. And not only was he huge, he was aggressive and he was intimidating. Listen to these words. Listen to these words, chapter 17, verse 8. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. And if he's able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. This guy's confident. These are fighting words. He's not afraid to throw down the gauntlet. He's like, come on, Israel. Give me your best because I'm just going to destroy you anyway. And then we've got David. A normal-sized human being probably average height, average weight for someone his age, which is recorded probably between the ages of 16 and 19. Because the age for conscription into the Israelite army was 20. And we know that David actually, the scripture says, David wasn't actually in the army originally. His three older brothers were. And so he was obviously too young to be conscripted. And he is described in the previous chapter, chapter 16, as being the youngest of his father Jesse's eight sons. Occupation, shepherd. Description, too young to serve in the army. Context, what's he doing here in this chapter? Well, he rocks up to the battlefield because he's delivering rations to his older brothers. So they're over here in the midst of this terrifying showdown with this behemoth of a man who wants to tear them apart. And here comes David with menu log. Like, guys, don't worry, I brought you some sustenance. Now, to be fair, David was not described as being completely useless in combat. I don't want to paint a false picture here. As we'll read later, he is described as having had defended his father's sheep against wild beasts. So David, he's not this, you know, he's not like this tiny little puny helpless guy. He's competent. 
He has some experience defending his father's sheep. But even considering this fact on paper, this is not a fair fight. This is not two title favorites going up against each other. One of these is definitely like the underdog. Way, way, way under. And if I had to bet on the experienced, merciless, special forces soldier who also happens to be the biggest man alive or the well-intended shepherd, I know who I'm taking. I know where I'm putting my money. However, God doesn't view our affairs through natural eyes. And that's the key to this first lesson. See, he picked David for a purpose, even despite his youth, even despite his stature, even despite his inexperience. Consider these words from God back in 1 Samuel 16. Flick back over to the previous chapter. This is what God says to Samuel when Samuel visits the house of Jesse in search of Israel's next king. Verse 4, Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? And Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to sacrifice with me. Notice this here. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Verse 6 says, when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab, or Eliab, and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. So this is Jesse's firstborn. The oldest son, the biggest brother, the most impressive one who does happen to be on the battlefield in chapter 17. Verse 7, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height. For I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things that people look at. Isn't that incisive? The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. See, Samuel was convinced that the older son was to be the king because he fit the bill. He was big, he was impressive, he was tall and strong. He didn't realize that God's plan was to use the smallest, presumably probably the shortest of the brothers, the youngest, the most unlikely to be anointed as his king and to bring the Israelites victory against the Philistines. You see, when you are in a situation where the odds seem stacked against you, what do you see? What do you see? That's the question. How do you view the situation? Does your focus primarily gravitate towards what you can see with your own eyes? Or can you view things from a spiritual perspective? Do, do you draw conclusions about the world and about God and about the purpose of all of this based only on your own human wisdom and understanding? Like what you can logically and rationally make sense of it? Or do you consider what might God be doing? What might God be doing in and through this situation? What might he be teaching me? Is the answer as obvious as it seems or perhaps is God up to something else? 
We learn to view our situation with spiritual eyes. The second lesson about what to do when coming face to face with an insurmountable situation is this. We use testimony to fuel our faith. We use our testimony to fuel our faith. Let me explain what that means. You see, I think one of the most incredible aspects of the narrative in 1 Samuel 17 is you see all these contrasts, right? David, Goliath, big, small, tall, short, you know, obviously all the obvious ones. But one of the ones I think is incredibly striking is the contrast between the fear of the Israelites and the faith-filled confidence of David. I don't know if you noticed it the first time that Hannah read for you. In verse 11, we read that the Israelites are dismayed and terrified. Those are the words that the author uses. Dismayed and terrified following Goliath's challenge. And again in verse 24, it says that whenever the Israelites saw the man, Goliath, they all fled from him in great fear. And so adding to his insult, adding to his challenge and intimidation, not only did Goliath give his speech about, you know, send out your one man because I'm going to destroy him. Not only did he do that initially, it says he actually did that every day for 40 days. So the two armies are here, like Israelites camped out here, Philistines camped out here, valley in between them. What's going to happen? When when are we going to start the battle? Who's going to win? And every day, Goliath would come out from the ranks And just stand there and just yell at them. Same thing every day. And verse 24, whenever they saw him, they just fled from him in great fear. Back into the protection of the shelter, back into the protection of the tents. Behind the lines, man, we don't even want to see this guy. He is terrifying. The context is kind of built a little bit more when we understand that the king had even promised a great reward to anyone who would defeat Goliath. This was the king's reward. Uh, I'll summarize it for you. So anyone who defeats Goliath, this is what Saul's going to give them. His daughter's hand in marriage and tax-free status for the entire family, for their whole life. So this is enticing. Like if, you're, if you are an Israelite man in the army and, you know, maybe you're one of the burliest, more stronger dudes, you're like, maybe I got a shot at this. Like have a crack, man. Because you're getting a wife, and your whole family is going to be tax-free for the rest of your life. Like, this is a very attractive, enticing prize. But the Israelite army is so paralyzed with fear that not even one man would step forward to have a go. And, you know, I think it's easy to make fun of the Israelites and to think of them as cowards. But to be honest, I think if we're real, like their response is, is probably pretty reasonable, humanly speaking, right, with the natural lens. Like their response is probably what I would do, Pro- probably what, what you would do. I wonder even in your life when you come up against what seems to be a giant that you can't overcome, do we actually even step out? Do we, do we actually even pray? Or do we just, are we paralyzed with fear? In contrast, David seems to be full of confidence and faith from the get-go. When he arrives with Uber Eats for his brothers and sees Goliath taunting and intimidating the army, 
day after day. This is his response in verse 26. It says, David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Catch this. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Now remember, this is a teenage guy coming delivering rations, not even in the army. And yet David is so fueled by concern for God's honor that he has the audacity to identify Goliath, not just as the enemy or the opponent. He's like this uncircumcised Philistine. David's not lacking confidence. These are some fighting words for a shepherd boy who's only there in the first place to deliver food. And as the narrative unfolds, we see that this confidence is not a one-time thing from David. In fact, he is so supremely confident that he asks Saul if he can be the one to be Israel's representative, if he can be the one to be the champion. In verse 31, it says, What David said, so what he has just said, was overheard and reported to Saul, and so Saul sent for him. And notice the contrast there. Don't even remember last week, Saul, he was described as being one foot taller than anyone else in all of Israel. So if anyone was supposed to be the man to walk out onto the field and challenge Goliath, who do you think the Israelites were expecting to be that guy? Like if you are a loyal servant, a loyal soldier of the king, and this champion has just come out and issued this challenge, I mean, who are you thinking is... Our king is courageous. He's bold and, and, and faith-filled. I'm sure Saul is going to come out and respond to this challenge. And yet where is Saul? Sitting in the temple courts, away from the action. And it says, Saul sent for him. David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Let no one Lose heart on account of this Philistine, for your servant will go and fight him. See, Saul is nowhere to be found. He's not coming out onto the field. In fact, sorry, a correction from what I said. I don't know if he was in the temple courts. It's probably more likely he was in one of the military tents, camped out there. But either way, he's not putting up his hand to fight Goliath. And the contrast is David says, I will do it. I will do it. And would no one in this army lose heart? Now, obviously, for many of us, we are very familiar with this story. And so, yeah, it's a given that David would fight Goliath, isn't it? Of course he does. But consider that this is a real story. Put yourself in David's shoes for a moment and consider the courage that it must have taken to put up your hand for this. David, why would you do this? Goliath is going to tear you to shreds. Are you even trained in military combat? We don't know. What is the source of his confidence? Where does his faith come from? That's the question because if we want to step out in faith, we need to know what is the substance of that faith. What is the fuel for that faith? How do we get some of what David has? Is this simply the power of positivity? Like, like David is that friend of yours who's always like, yep, we can do it. My friend Tom, Tom Stewart, she'll be right. 
We can do it. It's all going to work out. Is he that guy who sees the glass half full in every situation? Does David believe in the power of manifesting, speaking things into existence? Like he knows. I know I can. I know I can. I know I can. I know I can. I'm going to win. No, the answer is found there in the verses. Have a look there. Verse 33 of chapter 17. Let's read together. Saul replied to David, you're not able to go out to war against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man. How patronizing. And he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it and struck it and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it and killed it. Verse 36, your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. And I just can't help but imagine a bit of swagger in David when he says this. Verse 37, and here it is. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. Did you see it there? Did you pick up on the source of David's faith? The reason why he can be so supremely confident. See, David's faith is not a blind optimism. It's not wishful thinking. It's not predicated on like a mindset shift or a psychological technique that he learned from spending time with his therapist. No, David's faith is based on the track record of a powerful, mighty God who has delivered him before. A God that he can count on who has rescued him, as it says in verse 37, from wild beasts in the past, as he's been tending to his father's sheep. And so he believes that this same God can deliver him again. See, David's faith is predicated on his lived experience of what God has already done in his life. Not toxic positivity, not even correct theological doctrine, but his lived experience. I've seen God do it. He can do it again. He's been faithful to me once. He will be faithful again. And so the question I have for you this morning, Anchor Church, what is your testimony? What is your story? Because when you need a faith boost in your life, there's really only one question that you need to be asking yourself, and it's this, what has God already done in my life? What has He already saved you from? How has He delivered you before? And it might not always look like what you expect it to look like, but believe me, He is still the same God today. And if he has been faithful, you, faithful to you before, he will be faithful to you again. See, in the Old Testament, this is a common practice for God's people. 
You might remember uh, the song of Miriam, I believe it's called, that the Israelites sing after they cross the Red Sea and they're delivered from Egypt. The very first thing that they do as they're walking in their salvation is they remember the deliverance of God and they sing His praises. They recall how He has mightily rescued them. A good proportion of the Psalms follow this same pattern. The psalmist, David, the choir of Israel singing, recalling, recounting the mighty, wonderful, powerful, faithful, providing God and what He has done for them. It's a practice of remembrance. It's a practice of recollection. And I believe that the key to a faith-filled response for us when we come face-to-face with an insurmountable situation is to recall our own salvation history, our own story of how God has delivered us, of how God has saved us when we were at our worst, when we were stuck, when we found ourselves at the bottom of the pit and we had no answers and we didn't know where to go. And we thought, maybe I'll just, I'll just throw out... You know, just throw out a life call, a lifeline. Hopefully someone will maybe catch me and God was there. And he delivered you from from an addiction or from a place of loneliness or from your own sins and rebelliousness. What has God done for you? We use testimony to fuel our faith. We follow in the example of God's people in the Old Testament. And we let recollection and remembrance become a practice of our lives. When the present seems unclear, when the future seems unknown, we bank on what God has done, what we have seen, what is true. And the third lesson we learn about what to do when coming face to face with giants is this, we trust God for the victory. We trust God for the victory. See, Saul agrees to let David fight Goliath, and David heads out to the battlefield with nothing more than his shepherd's staff, little shepherd's pouch with five stones inside and a sling. Saul tried to give him more stuff. Like Saul was like, take all of my army, uh, sorry, take all of my armor and take my helmet and my sword and all my gear. David tries it on. It's like heavy. It doesn't fit. It's like going into a store, trying on an Excel when you're a medium. It's like, I cannot be walking around in this going to slow me down. I'm going to trip over, fall. So out goes David with a staff, a bag of five stones and a sling. And this is what it says in verse 43. I love, (laughs) I just imagine this. Goliath said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks, little boy? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I will give your flesh to the birds. In the wild animals. Whoa. Like Goliath knows, right? He's like, wow, this is the best that they've got. 40 days of coming out and issuing this challenge. And here comes like the boy on his milk run. Like delivering papers. Bro, I'm going to tear you apart. David said to the Philistine, verse 45, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hands, 
and I will strike you down and cut off your head. Like, what's going like, this guy is on something, bro. <laughs> this very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals. And the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. And here's the key in verse 47. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. Why? For the battle is the Lord's. And he will give all of you into our hands. You see, Goliath's trust was in his size, his muscles, his armor, his experience, his, his weaponry. The contrast is David's trust was in the God who would give him the victory. David believes that he will be victorious, not because of his own strength or might, not because of his own thinking or ability, but because the battle belongs to the Lord. Now, spoiler alert, because those are the last verses of the passage we're going to read this morning. David wins. David wins. God indeed delivers Goliath into his hands. One well-placed stone knocks him to the ground. David comes, takes Goliath's own sword, chops off his head. And Israel is victorious over the Philistines. But I think this lesson here to trust God with the victory, that's hard. Like, like it's easy when you hear David doing it. But it's hard for a people who like control. For a people who like fixing, right? Like that's me. Anytime my wife has a problem. James, I'm upset about this. James, oh, this, this thing's hard. James, I'm struggling with this. Problem solver mode. Here's what we can do. One, two, three steps. And, you know, just wait five minutes. I'll get all that out. And then I just need a hug. I just wanted you to say that you feel, you know, sad that I feel this way. It's hard for us to give over the responsibility and the weight of victory to God. Because we are people who like to be in control. We are people who like to fix our own problems. We believe that self-sufficiency, not reliance on God, is a measure of strength. But God's message to us from 1 Samuel 17 is that our power for victory is not found in our own might or in our own resources or resourcefulness, but in Him. See, the story might be called David and Goliath, but ultimately it could be James and Goliath, John and Goliath, Tom and Goliath. It's God who makes the victory possible. Without God, there is no victory for Israel here. David does not win. He is not the ultimate hero in this chapter. The hero is the Lord who delivers, the Lord who overcomes, the Lord who fights on your behalf. Now, that's not to say that David does nothing. David doesn't stay in the tent and then just pray and say, well, God's going to make it all tangibly and physically manifest on the battlefield, and he'll summon his invisible ghost armies, and then they'll defeat Goliath. No, David still steps out. David still exercises his faith. But at the end of the day, he knows that it's not on him. He does what he can, and he entrusts the outcome 
to God. You see, when you know that your victory depends not on yourself, but on God, that leads you to two very specific responses after you've stepped out. Pray and surrender. Pray and surrender. I wonder how many of us in the situations that we are facing or have faced, are we able to rest in God? Like truly, after, after we've done what we can, we've asked God what He's teaching us, and we've tried to exercise our faith, and, and, and we prayed, can we sleep at night? Or, or are we agitating? Are, are we still trying to manufacture and fix? And well, maybe if I come up with these human solutions, like I, I can make a way for it to happen. But entrust God with the outcome. Prayer and surrender. As I close, as I get Jake to come up, you know, the question that I have from all of this, you know, we learned these three lessons, and I believe that they are true lessons. I believe they're lessons that we can and we should apply to every situation that we face. When things seem difficult, when the odds seem against us. But the question that I was left with that was nagging on my conscience as I prepared was, what do you do when the victory doesn't seem to come? Like, what do you do when you've done all of this? You've asked God for his eyes. Well, Lord, help me see what you're doing. If, if you're teaching me a lesson in this, show me what it is so that I would learn. You're exercising your faith. You're remembering what he's done. You're trusting him. What happens when the victory doesn't seem to come? And, you know, for me, I started this message with stories sharing about my mental health. My struggles, my challenges, the things that I have faced. And I've got to be real with you guys here this morning and tell you, I'm not fully healed. I'm not fully healed. I still struggle today despite many prayers, despite surrendering to God to the best of my abilities, despite seeking to understand, God, what are you doing in all of this? Just tell me the lesson and then take it away. I'm still not fully healed. And so what do we do when we've done all of that and the breakthrough and the healing and the victory still doesn't seem to come maybe not in the way that we want it to maybe not in the way that we think God should provide it what do we do and the truth is there's no easy answer to that question there's no easy answer but what I have learned in my years walking with Jesus, and particularly these last couple of years walking through hardships of mental health and loss and, and grief, is that although God is working in every single situation, let me tell you that there are some situations in this fallen, broken world that simply do not turn out the way that we want them to. That's what I've learned. It, it doesn't mean that God's not at work. Because he's still at work. But I think that's the product of living in a broken world. Some situations don't turn out the way we want them to. And this morning what I want to do as we close is I want to invite you to cast your eyes and encourage you to fix your gaze past your, your circumstances, past what you're facing, past the challenges, and see the good news of the gospel. That despite our, our 
uh, unresolved challenges despite the question marks that we might have. You know, some of us experiencing victory in these areas of our lives, some of us waiting for it, some of us losing hope, some of us unsure what is God doing next. The good news of the gospel is that God has already made the greatest victory possible for every person who trusts in Jesus, who believes in Jesus and follows Him. This is what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It says, Then when our bodies, our dying bodies, have been transformed into bodies that will never die, this scripture will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Verse 56, For sin is the sting that results in death, and the law gives sin its power. Verse 57, But thank God, he gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. And my intention in sharing this is not to belittle the things that you might be going through. It is not to go, well, well you know, I don't know what God's going to do, but hey, like God's done this other stuff. No, what you're going through is real. And, and continue to press in and continue to pray and continue to see things through a spiritual lens and continue to trust God for the victory. Never stop doing that, but as you wait for the answer to your prayer, remember that God has already defeated the greatest giant that all of us could ever face. The fiercest Goliath, in fact, in your life is not loss, is not relational breakdown, is not financial hardship, is not a bad diagnosis. The greatest Goliath is the reality of death that every person in this broken world will face. And the good news of the gospel is that God has already slayed it. God has already slayed this giant for us through the death and resurrection of His Son, Jesus on the cross, in our place. And so as we journey, as we bumble and, and stumble our way forward in this Christian life, and as we come face to face with many different trials and pains and sufferings. And as we continue to ask God for His favor on our lives and see things with the eyes of faith and, and entrust things to Him, we put our hope not in this broken world, but in the fact that God has already defeated death. The greatest giant has been slain. So that irrespective of what we go through, regardless of how the victory comes or what the victory looks like. We rest in the certainty. These small battles that we face, I don't, I don't mean that to, to minimize or to make you feel like your struggles are insignificant. But these small battles we face are nothing compared to the greatest victory of the entire war that God has already won that Jesus has already secured for each and every person who trusts in Him. That when we die, the Goliath of death, the enemy that thinks it would have the last laugh will realize it has no power on those who claim Christ. And we will be resurrected and raised to life in a new perfect creation where there will be no trials anymore. That's what God has secured for those who trust in Jesus. A pathway 
a certain, secure door into that future world. Why don't you pray with me? Father, I want to thank you this morning for your goodness. And I thank you that, Lord, you have spoken to us this morning. You've spoken to me. And Lord, we live as a people in the complexities of a broken world where things happen that we don't understand, where problems and issues arise that, that, that don't seem to be resolved in the time or the manner that we would want them to be. But you call us to have faith in the midst of that. You call us to trust you in the midst of that. And so, Father, I thank you. We thank you for the example of David this morning from your scriptures and pray that you would help us to be a people who would view our situations as insurmountable as they may seem as David did. God, that when we come up against challenges that, that seem impossible, when the odds seem stacked against us, give us your eyes to view the situation. And remind us of what you have already done in our lives so that our faith might be filled and fueled, God. And after we've done everything that we can, Lord, enable us to rest and trust in your victory. And we thank you for the greatest victory that you have won, Lord, over sin and death that one day we will fully realize what it means to share in that. And so God, as we journey, help us to fix our eyes on that reality, on that hope, on that truth of what you have already done, of the victory that we already have right now in you, regardless of circumstance, regardless of situation, regardless of feelings, God, let us celebrate and take joy in that victory. We love you. We want to respond in worship to you now. We thank you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. I encourage you to use this time as we sing together and you can, you can stand now. I encourage you to use this time to be surrendering whatever your version of Goliath is um, to the God who's already assured us of his victory to yield to him and to submit to him all those things so that he can produce new things in us.